Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. everybody welcome to the final episode of season two of the real estate rundown and you know what guys i have got a fantastic guest on for you today i don't know that he even needs any introduction but my friend kenny mcelroy has been involved in real estate for gosh what three decades kenny and yeah. you've been doing it in good markets and bad markets and up markets and down markets he's got a billion and a half dollar real estate portfolio he's got audiences all over the world. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to come chat with us on the Real Estate Rundown. Yeah. Happy to be here, bud. It's always great to be able to talk to people that are actually doing deals. You know, it's a lot of times some of these interviews are predictors or whatever. And so whenever I get an opportunity to speak to somebody actually building apartments and, you know, and owning real estate and a family like yours, I always uh, enjoy it. So let's get right into it. I know that you get asked this question a lot. I've heard you say it in big groups and small groups that you made most of your money. You made a lot of your wealth. You've done a lot of deals for your investors that have made serious money in downturn markets in 8, 9, 10, and 11. What is happening right now that is like 08, 09, and what is it? Sure. So we've been buying since the 90s, of course. And so we, in the 90s, we saw a run-up. Too, as we just saw. And then we experienced the bubble pop. Probably it started really like 06, 7, 8, because we were knee deep in a lot of different deals at the time. We were doing condo conversions and apartment renovations, and we were building apartments. And so kind of the same thing. Although, interestingly, we, we were heavily in the condo selling space. So for a lot of the single family folks out there, we were selling about 50 a month on our condo projects uh, business too. And so what happened that OA was a little different where we didn't have, we didn't go into OA with these really low interest rates. So in other words, OA didn't have, uh, like like right now, uh, we had these, the borrowing costs, these high borrowing or these low borrowing costs has really created these asset bubbles. And so it was quite different. There was a supply shortage. And so that was driving prices up. Oddly enough, there still is a supply shortage. Right. So that is a similarity for sure. And what happened then, I think one of the biggest issues in OA was on the single family side that people that were buying these houses as they were going up were getting these no qual loans and they could fog a mirror and get a loan, you know, and buy a house. And then, you know, the market was going up so that everybody's making all this money. So mortgage companies, title companies, real estate people. So very similar to today. Um, the difference is I do think that in this cycle, we don't have as many of those. I would call them toxic debt, you know, on some right. houses. Uh, and, and so then, you know, that whole thing kind of came crashing down when those house prices adjusted. Um, then the the prices of the homes were lower than the mortgages. So essentially, right. so and right. 
There was a term then called mailbox. They were jingle mail, which they would just set their keys back to the bank, you know, and yeah, and then walk yeah. from the houses. And so that is kind of what happened. And so what what that did, Shannon, it moved a bunch of people from their homes into the rental uh, arena. Right. That right. put a tremendous amount of pressure on multifamily. But if you think about it, during that time, which was very interesting to me, but the banks were taking water on the boat, so they're not going to lend, you know, while they're taking back all its right. You know, so they don't care if it's a multifamily, a commercial, or a single family. But it's a REO. Banks are not supposed to own real estate. You know, they're right. That's a bad thing for their balance sheet. Bad thing. They're not yeah, supposed to get it sure. back. So at the same time, which was interesting, the banks weren't lending because they're taking water on the boat with all these toxic real estate. And so the capital markets were really out of sync. You know, there wasn't right. investors were pulling back, banks were pulling back. So the whole market kind of contracted, but which actually probably was good because it takes a while for a real estate project to, I think, completely get, get to zero. So right. what I mean by that is like right now, sellers, there's a big disconnect between bid and ask. Yeah. And, and so the sellers are trying to negotiate, but they can't really. So the, I mean, they can, but nobody's going to buy because the rates have gone up. And when you're solving the cash flow, the difference is the price. So what will happen is these sellers, when I always tell people, is don't catch a falling knife. And so what happened in a way was as the real estate prices are falling, everybody's trying to time the fall again. You know what I said? Don't worry about it. Like let the property make its way through the seller's hands, through, all the way to the bank. And then the bank, let the bank do the write down. And so now you're just negotiating with the bank and it's, right. a, loss. it's a loss for the bank. That's when we started buying is we were buying a lot of stuff directly. I can think of one particular deal we bought directly from Bank of America that they owned the debt. They actually took this 680 unit project back in San Antonio. We still own it. They had like 25 or 26 million on the debt. They had lent that to the prior guy. The guy, of course, all his investors lost all their money. So the bank's sitting with this property, 50% vacant, 25, $26 million on their balance sheet. So what does a bank do with that? So the, the thing is, is so they look for guys like us to solve that problem, right? So I go in and I said, listen, it's 50% vacant. There's a tremendous amount of risk. There's a lot of cap work needed, but I'll take it off your hands, but you have to finance it because who's going to finance a 50% vacant property? No one except right. that owns it. So this is where the experience kicks in. You know, this is right. when the banks look at how, how can now I solve their problem? We got the bank to write down the debt to size it to what we thought it was. I can't remember exactly. I, I think it was 20 or $21 million. So the bank took a 4 or $5 million haircut on the debt, which hurts the shareholders of the bank, but whatever. And then I had to come up with the solution. So the solution was how much money would I need to fix this project? How long did it take? And so that's where all the work. And so I feel like, Obviously, so we were all into that project somewhere around 28 million bucks, let's say. 
680 units, if you can believe it, right? So I don't know what it's worth today. We still own it, but you can imagine it's worth probably over 100 million. Okay. Right. Yeah, easy, easy. I mean, if you're 200 a door, you're you're 100 yeah. million dollars. So, right? so good turf. So that that, but but I the only reason I go through that whole story is because that's what's happening next. So I think that we need to see real estate make its way to our investors in trouble. Absolutely, in a lot of cases, our sponsors in trouble. Yes, depending on whether they're they have a capital gain type of an exit. For us, Shannon, every deal, even the ones I was talking about earlier, I always had a cash flow strategy from day one. So in other words, whenever I buy anything, I make sure that it cash flows, period. And then the right. gap gain is icing on the cake. So, so really what, what I hear you saying is that the problem that people had, the problem that this gentleman had in San Antonio was he had a $26 million loan, he had investor's capital, and he had a cash flow problem. And when he was unable to solve the cash flow problem, then he went into default. So if you bought something, let's just run the scenario because before everybody starts slitting their wrist and going, oh my God, I'm going to lose everything, right? Let's say you bought something last year, right? And you bought at pretty close to the top of the market. But the thing cash flows, it's 95% occupied. What do you see happening with that? If somebody's got long-term debt on it, if they're if they're situated for, let's say they got a five-year interest only that's fixed and they're sitting here on top of the pile, they paid too much for it maybe, but they own it, it's 95% occupied. What's going to happen to that particular guy? I've been in that situation. So we bought in Austin, Texas somewhere in the mid 2000s before, you know, call it the 0708 crash. And we were in that situation. So we bought a 200, I think it was a 230 unit building and um, we, and then the market collapsed, right? So in that particular case, which is, I also think what's going to happen next is the, think about what, ha what was happening. People were moving out of single family into multifamily. So what happened was, um, yes, the cap rates went up, all that stuff got disrupted, but but I don't have the I don't have a the predetermined exit. So that's the key. So for me, Ross and I looked at each other and we we're like, listen, all right, we just gotta manage our way through this and um we just gotta stay, you know, as occupied as we can and make sure that that um our operations are really super sound. And so that's what we did. And so what happened is we cash flowed during that period of time. Not a ton. I mean, there were mark there were times where I want to say we were we might even have been negative or maybe even one or two percent cash flow. We just communicated to the investors and said, listen, we're gonna have to ride this out. And we still believe in this market long term. Obviously, Austin is hotter than hot right now. So it did come back around at some point. But because we we didn't have we had fixed rate debt. And we and we cash flowed, so we were fine. And we carried that all the way through 8, 9, 10, 12. I can't remember exactly when the market started to tighten back up. So it does reset. It does hit whatever it hits. And then, it, it, you know, it does start to climb back up. The one big positive for us at that time were the renters, obviously. And that's the business I'm in is, you know, right. we're in the rental business. So that, I also believe 
is very similar to 08, where if that happens again, if these people, they lose their Airbnbs and they lose their, their second homes and, and, and even potentially their primary homes and everything starts to stop, and especially with these interest rates are forcing people, their mortgages are so much higher on their single family uh, buy that it keeps them in rentals, unfortunately. Yeah. That's not necessarily good. Right. Because yeah, every year there's a certain number of people that kind of graduate from the apartment life to, you know, the, the three bedroom, two bath, they're, they, you know, they get the dog, they get the kids, they get married, they do all those normal things, then start you down that road. And there's a lot of people that are kind of stuck in purgatory now, right? Because they can't get out because what they did qualify for at, at, at a 4% interest rate, maybe they could have qualified for at six. There's no way they qualify today, Right. Right. And so you've got kind of a backlog that's coming in. You've got new kids coming out of high school, people trying to move out of mom's basement, you know, all those kind of things. And so you're having this, do you see this, the demand side issue getting exacerbated and, and continuing upward pressure during the next couple of years? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, uh, you know, our kids are similar ages and yeah. they have the this exact issue. I have a son that's been out of college two years. He's saving, he's working. And now, of course, that house, that mortgage payment has gotten further and further and further out of reach, kept them in, in the rentals. And that's where a lot of people are. They don't have to be 24, 25 years old to be in that situation. And so, yes, to your point, that what that does is that keeps people in the rental space. And I've told everybody, I've done a couple of videos on this. I really believe that we could be, for the first time, we could be under 60% home ownership. And yeah. so there was a time, I think it was Bush, that said, everyone needs own home. And, and then so, you know, that was a that was back in the, gosh, late 90s, I think, uh, early yeah. 2000s. I'm going off of memory. but And so what happened is everybody was buying homes. And that, yeah. you know, that created that bubble. Then we had the pop. And then they moved back into rentals that created a bubble in the rental market, you know, right. and then to keep it going, they lowered the rates that all of a sudden somebody, you know, when you lower rates on a $500,000 home, let's say, and if they go from seven to six to five to four, that home can go up in price, you know? Yeah. It, because anybody's a, we're a payment society now. Everybody right. wants to figure out what the payment is, right? The payment. Yeah is $1,200 a month. I get this much house for $1,200 right. a month. It's kind of a different version of the same 2007 McMansion that everybody bought with that negatively advertising loan. But you know, it, it artificially stimulated the economy. It got things going. It got things cranking. And so now here we are. And what people used to be able to afford, you and I grew up on 8% interest rates. I mean, right. you know, that's, that's where our business has been built for Third, mine 30 years, years longer than that. But at the end of the day, it's new for people. The other thing that I hear you saying, Kenny, that I think is really important. I mean, really important. Everybody's been playing real estate like it's blue chip stocks lately, right? Yeah. Uh, I bought something, I sold it, I made a jillion dollars and that's great. But what are you doing next? What's your next trick? You paid the, the government their 30% or their, if you held it long-term, maybe you paid them their 18%. But at the end of the day, you're in a cyclical business that is that you're trading assets when the reality is you're not accumulating cash flow. You're not playing it for the long-term. And I think that 
you know, a lot of that, don't you see that maybe that has kind of people have gotten a little bit of a warped perspective on what real estate is supposed to be? Yeah, it's a great, really, really insightful thought. I think that that's it. I think investing fundamentals have not been really taught very well. And you see it in the crypto space. You see it in the stock market space. And largely, now you've seen it in the real estate space. You know, my kids, I think they believe everything continues to go up. You know you know what I mean? Right. And that's all they've ever experienced. And, and right. So it's fair. But you and I, I remember coming out of school and seeing what happened kind of during the, in the 80s the RTC days, the Resolution Trust Corp, or they, you know, I've kind of seen this. I didn't unfortunately have the capital or the smarts or the wisdom to be able to capitalize during that time because I was young, but I did come out the, uh, when I came into the real estate market, the tide had gone out. And right. uh, you know, if I would have been wise and had all the capital, man, you know, I would have done it yeah. in time. But then, then yeah. it's happened it will happen again. And I believe yeah. that we're in this right now. We're in this reset. And it, yeah, this is where the fundamentals. So we're talking about inflation, right? And and we're seeing that inflation. And and yet I hear you talk about really kind of a, a softening in price. Are you talking about a softening in rents also? So yeah, we have seen a little bit of softening in rents. And that's, I believe, has more to do with affordability than supply. So yes, we have in some markets, we're on fire at others, but my entire career was built on two and 3% per year rent growth. Right. We never budgeted more than that. And some years we budgeted flat or 1%. We were just trying to cover our expenses because expenses always yeah. go up. That's my entire career. And so what we just experienced in the last few years is not good for the rental market. It's not good to have 8 10% rent growth for a renter. It's not good for anyone. And So what you're saying is your projections the last couple of years, you really missed those projections because you were shooting at 2% and they went at 15 and, and 10 in a well, lot of markets. But unto the state I got to tell you, like we have 10,000 units and, and we had a conversation with a management company on a property that we, we built maybe, I don't know, five, six years prior. And I looked at the rents and we were in a period of one year, we were $240 a unit under market. That's because the rents went up so fast yeah. in that particular market. And I was like, what happened here? And they're like, you know, the market just went well, and, yeah. and all of a sudden, we're the low-priced option, you know, right. the new properties. And, and so what happens during that time is the brokers and the buyers come swarming in and they're like, oh, we've got a nice little value add here. Well, luckily, I'm not in a position that I have to sell. So right. he just said, Listen, how do we keep the residents in the place, not gouge them on the rent increases? Uh, this is a long-term hold for us. But- that's what happens when rent goes up in a marketplace. It goes right. up 20% in two years, which in a lot of markets it did. If you have $1,000 rents, that's a $200 issue. You have $2,000 rents, it's a $400 issue. So yeah. it happened across the country. Right. Well, and, and you know, I've heard you say on your podcast, in fact, we talked about it a little bit, my home market, Boise, Idaho, 
is getting hammered on. I mean, we're going to be one of the ones that are leading the nation in in prices off. Yeah, but but I don't know that we're really going to see a, a rent, you know, degradation in price because of availability. But I was listening to Peter Schiff the other day, and he was talking about how the Johns report is is actually showing data that people are working less; they're just having to be paid more, right? And it comes down to this question of if Kenny needs, if the market's going up and the new ones cost this much and the used one is this much and the market keeps moving, I got to pay people more because they got $5 gas and they got $2,000 rents and they, we got to keep the dream alive of homeownership. Where do you see that kind of ending for everybody with what point do we return back to 2 and 3% growth because we've reached a maximum vortex? Uh, we can't continue to go up anymore, or do we kind of go through this transition where things kind of, I mean, the Fed's trying to stabilize things, but if people are working less hours for more money per hour, we're kind of in that same stagnant thing where we can't push rent, so we can't push prices. We got interest rates going up. DSCR is limiting the purchase price, and so we've got kind of this pressure on all sides, it sounds like. I mean, that's what you're saying, Kenny, is that we got yep. pressure on... On every single side against the center, it's just about holding the boat together. Yeah. Uh, and I always tell everybody that's all, everything you said was exactly accurate. You know, we're experiencing all of those things high labor costs and right sizing people, you know, based on salaries and all that stuff. We've had to do that. That doesn't mean our revenue went up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, that means right. that our expenses have gone up and our profit has gone down. So I think the reason I bring that up is because I think that those kinds of pressures are going to force businesses to cut back, to close, maybe not grow, even shut down. Or So that's what rising expenses do to a business, unless you have rising costs. Right. That's why I don't really see a... Uh, I've had these conversations with my employees where they're spending $500 a month on gas now. Yeah, and, you know, and they're not commuting very far, you know, right? Maybe 20, 30 minutes. And for Phoenix, that's really about not it. bad. So we've had those. And so that those are real and those are happening. And I, I think that one of the things that if you look at people's personal savings rates, they're actually at a pretty low number right now. I just did a right. video on this. So I'll watch that. Yeah. So I think that people are, well, I'm starting to see. They're starting to pull back. <clears throat> and I think this holiday season is going to be very interesting because we're just coming up on it. And I don't know, unless the government throws some more stimmy checks our way. By the way, that it doesn't help inflation, but it helps guys like us. If Biden is going to hand people money, which he did in the pandemic, they pay. They used it to pay rent. Right. And so yeah. those things... Those again, that helps the landlord. So yeah, even though it does well, and, and you know, in in your video, you talked about how people were taking some of that stippy money that they got last time, putting it in their savings account, which gave people this comfortable feeling. You know, now we're going into we've run out of stimmy checks. We had a a record Black Friday, right? Nine billion dollars were spent on Black Friday, set a record. So to your point, now that can only erode people's savings, but we've also and gotten addicted to the fact of the thought process that you just talked about. 
the government's going to print some more money, but that's a two-edged sword. And I think the government is even starting to see where what they did caused part of this problem. So printing more, which would be a temporary ease of the situation, won't be a long-term ease of the situation. Right. It just depends on, as we just got done with one election, we're going into another one. We've already got candidates declaring. So there's that political pressure to print more money, which would further complicate what we see and, and, the, and the time it takes to unwind this, right? Yeah, and they're all slow to respond. So like yeah. our newly elected governor came out last week and said, you know, we have a homelessness problem, which a lot of deaths do. We have an affordability problem. We have a density problem. We have an impact fee problem. And, you know, what that means is they're focused on delivering housing through the private sector right. for people and we need it. So yep. you know, it was a, I, when I read it, I was like, right on, you know, like that. Yeah. And that could come in the form of uh, red subsidies. It could come in the form of developer subsidies. It could come in the form of tax credits for people that are building things that, you know, there has to be some incentive. The government is, cannot build the housing that we need. It has to go through the private sector. And it's, right. they have to come up with programs for guys like us to be able to provide housing. Because as you know, for people who may not know, like if, if you have an acre of land and, and the, the city says you can only build one house on it, the price of the land plus the house, plus a little bit of profit, that's the number. But if right. you could build four, you know, the price of land's the same. And all of a sudden you start to, you're now working with the city. That's called relaxed zoning or, or you know, right. experiences. So those are things that we need. And then to be able to plug into sewer, power, water, and all that stuff, that can be very expensive. And so those are, you know, the city just doesn't let you build something. You got to pay all these fees for that. So those are all things, not to mention the financing and everything else. That could be, if that comes into the private sector, that would be a really, really good thing for, uh, and that would be something that people can look forward to if, if, if their government believes that, you know, because not all, all governments, you know, think the same way. Well, and, and you know, government's got to take a long-term position on that because the reality is, is that, okay, three years from now, Kenny, your tax base is going to be much higher, Right. So now you're going to be paying in more property taxes. You're going to be paying back that sewer connection that you got. You're going to be paying into the roads projects and you're going to be paying into the funds that are used for the homeless shelter and those kinds of things. Plus you're creating the housing. And so you've got to get what we saw the, the Biden's administration do was print some instant money that went instantly to everybody's pocket, but it's creating other problems of affordability down the road that are going to take more of a long-term effect approach to to do. So now when you start to see that, are you believing that you're going to see more development come in the next couple of years because people are, because when I say people, I see government agencies and, and governors and mayors and things like that are seeing that that's more necessary. It's job creation. It keeps economies moving and it solves problems that have been exacerbated over years. I don't think they're that smart, honestly, Shannon. <laughs> I, I, I really don't. I think I know. I, know. I think they respond to homelessness issues. They respond to their a voter base of saying, "I can't afford rent," and so from there they start to look at things. I don't think that 
you know, their one, two, five, 10 year strategic. I don't think they they do that at all. I think they're very reactionary. And, uh, and what will happen, because we've seen this before, like if you, there's some horrible, horrible examples, like the city of Los Angeles that decided to do this, you know, and provide all this affordable housing. And there's articles about the corruption and the, you know, the, the, the fees and the people in everybody's pockets and how much it costs to actually build something. It's horrible. And so you could have that, or you could have somebody who says, you know what, we need to, these kinds of things and we need to give it, what's going to fit in this box. Like it or not, but I know a lot of people hate Trump, but the, he what he did is he started those opportunity zones, and that was super positive. People don't know what opportunity zones are. I think there were over 2,000 of these in, in the United yeah. States. There were areas yeah. that you probably would not want to build in, but you got massive tax incentives to be able to go build there. And so what happened is there were opportunities on funds and people could invest in those. And then there was redevelopment going on all over the U.S. So those kinds of things work, not all of them. And I think that that's the stuff that every, and each politician is going to handle this a little bit differently, you know? So sure. like the state of Oregon, you know, they've already implemented statewide rent control. Okay. So right. who's going to invest there? Nobody. Right. Yeah. All yeah. that's going to do is if you're basically saying, hey, guys like us, come to Oregon, but hey, we're going to restrict uh, what you can do on the on the income side, you know, and we're going to raise your taxes and we're, you know, all the things that, you know. So your expenses are going to go up, your profit margins is going to straight on, but you, so, you're going to love it here. You're, yeah, you're going to love it here. It's going to like, so you're going to like, so, it. you know, so now, yeah, could that change? Sure. And so what'll happen is the money will not flow. You know, money flows where it's treated best. And so that's what whether that's Idaho or Washington or Utah or Arizona or a city of Phoenix or there's differences between Phoenix and Tucson in the way the mayor and the you know everybody thinks. So things can be very different from market to market. Yeah. To me, I think that I think there's going to be huge opportunities, and I think some of the hopefully, so some of these now that these elections are over, they have to face this stuff. I mean, right. if you look at San Francisco, it's dangerous down there right now. Yeah, and I know many, 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 many people that have moved out of there, and I know many uh, businesses that have moved out of there. And I know that those the businesses that are still there uh, are having issues with their employees just even walking to work. So yeah. how do you solve that? Because that's such a big tax base. It will get solved. Somebody will step in and clean all that up, but it just takes a while. But the, but the city of San Francisco has to be experiencing, I mean, who's going to go down there and nobody's buying coffee, nobody's eating lunch. You know, nobody's staying right. for dinner and a happy hour afterwards. All that commerce is moved somewhere else. Right. And so, you know, and, and we've seen New York has been through that cycle, right? Yeah. They went down that hole, Giuliani cleaned it up. Now they're they're kind of back at that same spot. And people, I mean, Detroit's going through it. Uh, Chicago's going through it. Places are going through it. And their people need to understand that, yeah, that lack of reinvestment has a lot to do with the politics, not the politics affecting the reinvestment, 
right? It's not yeah. the politics came first. It's the, we watched the actions and that's where we decided to go. I know that you do a huge deep dive into a marketplace yeah. on the socio-political side to see what's going on, what's the homeless rate, what's the crime rate, what's the livability factor, what's the walkable factor. All of those things go into your underwriting way before you ever decide to invest. And then when you invest, you tend to stay in markets that treat your money well because you don't want to wind up in that situation. Then, then, then it takes that act of bravery where you give somebody that says, you know what, I'm going to invest for the benevolence of, I'm going to invest because I believe in San Francisco turning the corner. I believe in New York turning the corner. And those guys, they say they're they're all about the benevolence when the biggest margin's at the bottom, right? The, the sharks are sharks are coming in and fixing what's going on. So yes. as we conclude, I just want to want to look at what are you seeing? What do you see values doing and interest rates doing over the next 12 months in your Ken McElroy crystal ball? What are we projecting here? Sure. So we were looking at nine inning gain, let's say, and the ninth inning would be assets sitting back at the bank. I think we're probably in the third inning. Yeah. So I believe that we're really early. And because what's happened is we've seen these rate increases, higher borrowing costs are killing everything. So just when borrowing costs go up, consumption goes down. So right. everything goes down. And so we haven't really seen the adjustments. And I actually had dinner last night with a friend of mine who's in the assisted care business. And he's looking at a property in San Antonio. It's 50% occupied. And it's a seven-story high-rise. And he's looking and putting assisted care facility in. And I told him to wait. By the way, there's no bidders. <laughs> right, right. So we're starting to see things creep up. We're starting to see desperation on the seller side. And in certain situations, again, if I borrow money from you, Shannon, you want it back like in, let's say, three years, four years, period. That's how right. managed money works. So yeah. they don't give it to you for a long, long time. Like they want it back. So their internal rate of return of their IRRs go down the longer it's out. So there's a fixed amount of time on that equity. There's a fixed amount of time on that debt. And so depending on what's going on with the individual assets, that all is going to have to reset. So I think next year, you're going to start to see LP equity issues, and you're going to start to see some sharks come in with money trying to buy stuff. But I, I believe that's just inning four or five. And, and, I, yeah. and then that has to get a little bit worse. And again, it just needs to, it needs to work itself through. So we're in inning three. Inning nine is the bank's data back. Inning nine is your Austin story from earlier where you're buying 600 units for 20 million and the banks carry the financing on it. Are you buying in inning four, five, six, and seven when it makes, I mean, just because, I mean, this interest rate isn't foreign to you and I. Right. So it's a good, it's a good question. Yeah. Yep. So the, the, the deal I bought was in San Antonio, and that was inning nine, let's say. But to your point, I we are. So we're still underwriting. We're still looking at deals. Our acquisition guys are out looking. We still have analysts digging into stuff. And we're bidding on perhaps one to three deals a week. But to your point, I'm still doing it based on cash flow. So right. 
Uh, so why would I be doing that? Let's say you have a 30-year AM on a deal and you're you're sitting in a three a three and a half percent loan. I can buy a deal like that today, an assumable loan, step into your position where the asset is now or the debt is now an asset. So for me, because I can't get that kind of money out there. Right. So again, I'm solving the cash flow. And or if there's been a seller that's adjusted their pricing and they know that I'm going to be sitting at, let's say, 6%, 7% fixed and it's still cash flows, I may buy that because I'll be hopeful. I'm hedging the higher interest, but I'm also hoping that it rates go down again so that I'll have a cash out refi opportunity. So again, I'm just solving the cash flow in both cases. Yeah. And so your belief, and, and going back and kind of recapping, you know, your belief is that demand is going to stay strong. Yeah. Uh, and when I say demand, I'm talking about, you know, the Ken McElroy style of demand where, you know, 2%, 3% adjustment in uh, rent is what we're going to see moving forward. Uh, maybe we're going to see flat for a couple of years or a couple quarters. If it underwrites, it's still a viable deal uh, because, again, if you've got cash flow, you're putting yourself in front of that income stream. And then you always have the opportunity two, three, five, ten 10 years down the road to refinance that into better price debt, which debt is also a cycle. It goes up and down. And as long as you have the right kind of window, and the thing I think everybody should take away from this, from this episode is that the window that a lot of people have been operating in in the last five years is too short. The real estate window is a long-term cycle, and can you prove that again and again? Because your, as we talked about, your greatest wealth has been created in your longest assets, in the things that you've owned the longest. That's correct. Yeah. So we still own the properties that we bought in eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, let's say, and they tripled, quadrupled whatever. It doesn't really matter unless you sell and get the money, you know? Um, right, it's, right. It's fake equity. But during that run, we've, our, again, our prices, the interest rates have went down. So we were we were coming out of 7 and 6% debt and refinancing at 4 And then when it went down into 3s, we refinanced it under 3 you know? And so we did all of that. And those are, those are cash out refi opportunities. We still kept the properties. And so you're using the properties like an ATM machine based on the interest rate uh, as it went down. I can't tell you that interest rates are going to go down, but if I'm buying today and cash flow is at a seven, I'm good. You know, right. if rates go to six or five or four, then it's even better for me because I still get to keep the asset. And I now get a lower loan payment and they're going to give me a cash out refi, which is tax free because right. refinance is tax free. It's yeah. it's that. So, so what I hear you saying too, Ken, I think it's important to, to understand too, while you don't know if rates are going to go up or rates are going to go down, we do know that rates are cyclical. Yeah. Been as high as 18%. They've been as high as the lowest three. They're going to go back up. They're going to go back down. We just don't know when, but if you've got a deal now that's the pencils and you can do it, uh, probably a great opportunity to get in there. You're not bidding with nine or 10 or 12 other people and you're able to get some some decent pricing, but you wouldn't want floating debt at this point, obviously. 
And so you can still position yourself to be in a great place moving forward. And if you've got the kind of window that you're talking about, the 20-year horizon on real estate, you're going to do phenomenal. You're going to do very well because there's people that have bought in 07 at the peak of the market that are doing well today. Restaurant as they held on. Yeah, it's it's yeah, and, and I think that's why kind of going back to that fundamentals. You know, my I'll pick on my kids because I can't. So you know, like everything in their lifetime, you know, has gone up. You know, and, yeah, and, and, and they've had this incredible run. And I think a lot of a uh, lot of young syndicators and a lot of people that are coming into the space or in the space right now, influencers. It's going to be interesting to see how well they do as these prices adjust because all they've ever experienced and all they've ever seen is, hey, next year is better than last year. Well, right. you and I know that that's not always true. And hopefully they're well capitalized. They have good reserves and all those kinds of things, which is also super helpful Yeah, as you start to hit bumps in the road because at the end of the day, cash can save a lot of things. Right. Right. Well, hey, Ken, I want to thank you for stopping by the Real Estate Rundown and sharing with us. You know, it's always awesome when you get somebody with your level of experience that's been doing deals that still feels that there's deals to be done. That we're not in the ninth inning of the ball game. It's not as bloody as it looks right now. It's great to hear that it's going to get worse. So thanks for that bit of insight. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, it, it's the voice of experience and it's that experience that gives me great time to reflect and go, hey, you know what, based on what other people with great experience are doing, am I doing those kinds of things? So thanks for stopping by. Now, real quick though, you've got a couple of books that you've written that people need to get because even though they've been your first, how long ago did you write your first book? Yeah, gosh, it's been uh, 05. So yeah. And is are the principles any different now than they were in 05? They're the same. It's it's funny. I, I, I'm actually in the process of, of um, updating it. So I actually had to pour back into a book that I wrote oh, a while ago. And the truth is, all I really had to update were, were like red, you know, red smack, yeah. you know, were, you know, some of the numbers. Yeah. But the principles is that's obviously the ABCs of real estate investing. Yeah. And I know people can get it on our website at, at uh, com, and you can there's all kinds of stuff there i actually have a number of books for real estate and uh, by the way i full-time director of philanthropy so all the book sales everything i do you know goes out through our foundation anyway so yeah and so and i wanted to bring that up too because you know i've known you uh, probably better than most people uh, that are listening because i and I, I know that you give back where you got your, where you make your money, you know, you're giving back, you're making sure your communities that you're in are stronger. And I really appreciate that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up the book sales is because that's an opportunity for people to strengthen their knowledge, but also give back to the community at the same time. So again, man, thanks so much for showing up here at the Real Estate Rundown and giving us a, an inside look at what somebody that's been doing a couple of billion dollars with the real estate that's with a B guys and owns over 10,000 units is telling you to look forward to in the next couple of years. So guys, you know what to do, like, subscribe, follow us on everywhere we're at, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere, but be sure you tune in for the next season of the Real Estate Rundown. And once again, thanks again, Mr. McElroy. See you, dude. That's a wrap for today's episode of the Real Estate Rundown. 
Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnet.com. And be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode. Amen.